0: Well, hello family. God's grace and peace be multiplied to you in Jesus' name. Grab your Bibles, open them up, Genesis 5, 28. Uh, we're in a series, uh, as you know, uh, called uh, The Story of God, Us, and the World. We're going to pick up where we left off today. We have a partial uh, genealogy. Don't worry, it's not long. I cut it short, Okay. Uh, but what we're going to see is uh, obviously after genealogy you're going to see there's this population explosion on the planet and uh, Just one quick uh, point of clarification. I feel like I need to make is that uh, The lemmick that's mentioned at the beginning of this genealogy, and he actually says something So whenever people talk in the Bible, we need to listen to what they have to say they're revealing the inner thoughts This lemmick that's mentioned he's a different person than the lemmick of last week, okay? I, I, I just have to mention that because I know if I don't mention that very tiny little detail, I'll get a phone call from Rush or an email or something is going to ask me if I, what I meant. So I'm going to head that off early, okay, Rush? Uh, this Lamech, is, he's a good guy. He's from, the, he's from the line of Seth, okay, not the line of Cain. So with that said, please give uh, your full attention to the reading of God's
1: word. Well, Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying... Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be a 120 years. Then the were on earth in in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into them by the daughters of man, and they were and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord gr- regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the living word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most High and Holy Father, our Lord, creator and sustainer of all things, we, we love you, we thank you for who you are. Um, Lord, everything that you've said has turned out to be true. And you've said that all humans are like grass. The grass withers, the flower falls But the word of the Lord endures forever. Thank you for giving us something that endures. Lord Jesus, make your word plain. And I ask that you would feed your lambs today. For our spirits are hungry. I ask it in the sacred name of Of Jesus who lives and reigns forever. Amen. Is progress good or bad for the flourishing of a society? Uh, Well, if we take the story, the Genesis story, at face value, we have to answer, well, it depends. It depends. The folk singer John Prine uh, tells a story uh, of what coal mining did, to the towns in his famous song, Paradise. This is my favorite John Prine song, by the way. He says, quote, Well, the coal company came with the world's largest shovel. They tortured our timber and stripped all our land. And they dug for that coal till the land was forsaken, and they wrote it all down as the progress of man. Coal mining promised progress, jobs, wealth, energy, but it also created widespread and long-term medical problems that burdened entire towns and hospitals. Dangerous work environments that left many children without a father. And it often, the very presence of the coal mine and what they were willing to pay, it would often undercut the value of seeking a higher education, which would trap entire generations of men and women, and it also destroyed God's creation. So I ask is human progress the highest good for a society? Well, it depends on what you mean by progress, doesn't it? The philosopher C.S. Lewis gives us some insight. Into this. He says, quote, and it's a long one, but I want to read it in full so we get the full weight of this. We really need to think today before we get into this story. He says, quote, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you've taken the wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road and in that case the man who turns back the soonest is the most progressive man we've all seen this when doing arithmetic I, when i've started out a sum the wrong way the sooner that i admit it and go back and start over again the faster i shall get on there is nothing progressive about being pigheaded and refusing to admit A mistake. Lost my place here. Uh, And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Close quote. You see, as humans have progressed throughout the whole world, sin has also progressed deeply, and it has progressed widely. And this is the big idea of the message today. In order for us to truly progress as a race, a human race, Genesis calls us to get off the road of destruction. That's what we're going to talk about today. There's two reasons for this. And then hang in there, there's some good news. Okay? Okay. The first reason is this sin spreads widely through whole communities okay the Bible tells us that sin spreads widely through entire communities here it is right in the text verse 2 and 3 the sons of God and we're going to get to unpack what that phrase means as well as Nephilim the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And so, uh, good news. We've come to the most difficult part of Genesis to interpret. Aren't you excited? We made it. Uh, the, and the, the, the impulse is, uh, for us, it would be very tempting for us to spend most of our time to try to figure out who these groups are. Right? Uh, who are these figures, Uh, who are these sons of gods and the daughters of man and the Nephilim, right? That would be our big temptation today. But I think that that would be an exercise in missing the point because the Bible doesn't tell us. The author assumes the readers already know who these people are because he doesn't bother to explain it, all right? Uh, But just to satisfy some of you really curious people without burning a lot of time, there's three main views to this not going to go through them all but just hit them real quick each one has a strength and each one has weaknesses okay one view in this is that the nephilim are supernatural beings they're angels and these angels are fallen angels and they come down and they marry human women okay and they have offspring uh, another view is that these uh, sons of sons of uh, god and the nephilim they're powerful rulers so they have uh, you know might and power and influence And they've used their might to build a reputation for themselves, much like Lamech did in the last chapter. They're kind of like his offspring. The third view is that they're descendants of the spiritual line of those that walk in the way of Cain or those that walk in the way of Seth, and they intermarry, even though they're not supposed to. And they do it anyway. All right. I take the mighty leader view, but honestly, I'm not really dogmatic about it. I'm willing to change my mind. Okay, and and what the nephilim, what the nephilim uh, are, what their infamous offspring did, uh, that's more important than who they are, because that's the part the Bible does tell us. Bottom line is this: they displease God with their wickedness. Okay. So much so that God says, "I'm going to limit their time span. They don't get to do this forever." They don't get to do this for 900 years. So it was kind of an activist grace right there. What did they do? They saw attractive women and they took any that they wanted into their homes to be their wives, right? And there's no reason to think that their view of marriage was somehow the same as God's view of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And um, while the word, word for rape is not used uh, in the text, the language does strongly suggest uh, coercion uh, or that these marriages at least were like unilateral. They took took the ones they wanted, and it doesn't mean they limited them to one. And so what we have here, the Bible is telling us, uh, these are groups of strong men, and they are building harems instead of building true families. We're a long way from the first family, aren't we? Okay, and they are multiplying on the earth they're going all over the planet that's really important for us to keep in mind they're not just staying in one place okay as their offspring grow and you saw this in the text as we read to the end they their offspring end up building reputations for themselves of being powerful and violent men like father like son right That's what's modeled. That's what they're going to do. They get this reputation. They're men of great renown. That could be infamous, not necessarily that they were great people. just means everybody knew who they were and where they came from, what they did. Remember now, Genesis begins with individuals who sin against God, right? Which leads to a whole family that sins against God. And now, for the first time, we have entire groups of people are living together building cities and they are working together to sin against God much like the Tower of Babel that we're going to see in chapter 11 this is like a precursor to that so here's the point so you don't get lost I don't want you to miss the point sin doesn't stay contained to the individual and it is foolish to think otherwise Let me say that again. Sin does not stay contained to the individual, and it's foolish to think otherwise. You're kidding yourself. You're literally kidding yourself if you think otherwise. In other words, there is no such thing, Crossway, there is no such thing as a so-called private life and public life. There is only the life you live, Eventually and inevitably, our private life will spill over. It will come out and have an impact on society. It will become public and have an impact on the general public that's what the scriptures are telling us here much like dumping oil into the ocean pollutes all eventually inevitably it pollutes the water and it spreads suffering to all the birds and the fish and the plants who live in that particular ecosystem so also sin spreads pollution through entire organizations institutions neighborhoods and communities And when you have enough individuals who sin against God living together per capita, they will build sin into the laws. They will build sin into the customs. Into marriage. We just saw that in the text, did we not? Into the schools, into the businesses, into the organizations of whole communities Genesis teaches us that this is not just some a few random individuals who happen to sin against God entire groups can and they do rebel against God together they stand and together that's what a system is they stand together to make a concerted effort because the pollution of sin cannot be contained inside an individual sin spreads widely full stop And we need a category to understand that, okay? The League of the South was formed in 1994. Not 1894. Listen to that date. 1994. To accomplish what the Civil War did not, secession of the southern states into their own independent nation. The League of the South is an explicitly racist, white nationalist organization that distrusts all government, particularly the federal government, and believes that it is their divine calling to restore the South to its conservative, moral, Christian values, which are under attack. And by the way, I took all of that off their official website. They don't hide that they're proud of all that they want you to know that they regularly invoke the name Yahweh God Christ and even quote Bible verses in their statements about building a quote pure Confederate Republic of only Anglo Celtic lineage and that's off their front page of their website by the way their view of marriage and their view of society is strictly patriarchal Calling men back to a reputation of being mighty and holding power so that their women are protected. And does any of that sound like the offspring of the Nephilim to you? Gosh, I wish the Bible was so relevant to 2021. Listen, here's the takeaway. Ready? Ready? Sin pollutes entire groups and communities, even so called Christian communities. Today, your sin, my sin, does not stay personal, it does not stay private, it does not stay contained in the individual. Sin does not stay within my property line. It does not stay within my ha- the, the, the confines of my own personal closed doors. You, you read, my, read me? It doesn't stay there. It will break out like a contagion. Sin pollutes my neighborhood, church, school, institution, and wherever people that are like-minded band together because it's already in there right second reason we need to get off the road of destruction is this sin spreads deeply in its vileness not only does sin spread widely Genesis tells us but sin spreads deeply in its vileness it's right here in the text is verses 4 and 5 the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also when afterward whoa So let's not make the mistake of saying that was just a particular one-off generation and they're all dead now. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now listen, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Did you know that your heart can think? So it says right there. That's the core of your being, what you're thinking about and what you intend to do. Only evil continually. That's kind of a harsh commentary on humanity, right? First couple chapters, we had what? The doctrine of Dignity of humanity. And now we're getting to the doctrine of depravity. Once again here, God sees what humans cannot see. God looks past the outside. God looks past all the externals. And He sees deep down inside of us. He sees what our hearts actually desire. And He sees even what we're thinking. He didn't hear what we're thinking. He sees it. It says he saw what we're thinking, like it's being played out in front of his eyes. That's God. Of course, this do, this this doesn't happen over night, right? He says that he sees all of the, uh, what we are. That so much so that the that the in, even the inclination of our hearts was evil continually, right? And, and and the fact is that this didn't happen overnight or over a weekend, but rather over years guys this was years of erosion this was years of chipping away at ethics but you know what this is what happens when your rulers and your people of renown lack virtuous character this is the outcome this is the end result history shows us that citizens that live downstream from their leaders follow Suit, morally speaking. I don't know if you've seen it, but Netflix has put together this fascinating uh, documentary series. It's called How to Become a Tyrant. It's a little tongue in cheek series. How to Become a Tyrant, and it includes interviews with experts in history. And in it is a collection of some of the worst leadership legacies in the human race. And also the well-documented playbook that these leaders tend to use again and again. They use it to gain power and to gain followers. And here's what I personally found so amazing about this, is that even though dictators like Hitler and Stalin and Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, they they spoke different languages, they live in kind of different time periods, and even though they were from very different cultures, they basically used the same playbook it's like the reading this off a script or something so here's what all the historians highlighted you ready the moral character of the leader or lack thereof matters more in the long run than their specific policies Isn't that interesting that's what mattered more Hitler had policies that greatly benefited all of his starving and demoralized countrymen, but they were just a tactic to give his narcissistic character room to reign. The dictator Idi Amin made policies to rid Uganda from British colonizers, which caused his countrymen to sing his praises and rejoice in the street. They were so glad that he came to power, but he made those policies only because he wanted to rule them for his personal benefit and, frankly, his ego. History as well as Scripture tell us repeatedly over and over that when a leader is using power merely to get her or his own way, the citizens will follow suit in how they treat their neighbors. Amen? If the leader is constantly preaching that everyone that is not like them is suspicious, or they might be spies then guess what? Eventually, you'll begin to see your neighbor as suspicious or maybe a spy. If your leaders are corrupt in, how they, uh, in their business dealings with other people, well, and that's praised and given a pass, how long do you think it'll be before you are corrupt? Your heart is corrupt and how you do business dealings with people and keep your word. Let me just ask this question. It's a little thought experiment. How do you explain this? How do you think thousands upon thousands of normal working class people who are just trying to make a living and put food on the table become the type of people who murder their neighbors even though they live right next door to them and have them over for dinner? How does that happen in a country, in a society, in a neighborhood? But that's exactly what happened in Rwanda right how do thousands upon thousands of very normal educated people of means turn in their own family members to the state to be executed how how does that happen to a society or a community that was even happening in churches how does that? How do people do that kind of thing to each other? That's exactly what happened during the Nazi occupation of Germany, Austria, Poland. You see, listen, and don't miss this. I'm, I'm not trying to be sensational or be cute. There's a point here that we, we ought not to miss. The fact that people were very rational, educated, that did nothing to stop them from acting vilely and inhumanely. That didn't even slow that down. The fact that they had a job, that they had money, that they had a good moral uh, Christian upbringing, that they came from well-adjusted family that did nothing to prevent them from participating in heinous acts. See, we, see, if we're honest, we read this story, we kind of cruise over it, and we look at the people in Genesis 6 and go, eh, we just kind of dismiss that as like a myth. That's like some pre you know premortal myth and then we look at the people in Rwanda and we look at the people in Nazi Germany or Uganda we comfort ourselves by saying yes but I could never do those things I could never stoop so low because I was raised better than that I was raised differently Or, that's just not my personality. My personality can't do something like that, ever. Isn't that exactly what those people said? Brothers and sisters, God wants us to see how deeply the pollution of sin goes. Okay? It has seeped into the soil down to our very soul. There is not that kind of person, okay, who does evil. Scripture, as well as history, teaches us that reality is not divided up into good people and bad people. There are only people, humans with human hearts. So let me ask you this because i love you when you look around at the depravity that's in our world do you see it in you at all is that your reaction to what you see at all ever that'd be a really good question for you to answer for yourself Do you see yourself as a participant in all that, in other words? Or do you see yourself merely just as a spectator? Because it went through a camera. I'm distanced from all of that. Do you say to yourself, well, thank God I'm not like those people over there. Or do you think ever think, when you see that and hear that, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am just like those people. I just haven't acted out every inclination of my heart. And I thank you for that. If I'm being honest with you, regrettably, I sound more often like the self-righteous ones. And so I need to hear this as much as any of us. And so that's the road we need to get off. That's why we need to get off this road. That's what being progressive means. But there's some good news here. And it says that God will destroy sin without completely destroying sinners. God will destroy sin without completely destroying sinners. And that's good news for us. Here it is in the text, verse 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Do Do you hear the emphasis the writer is putting there? And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. You hear this is a, it's just like when he created, right? This is a decreation that's happening. He's, he's using all those phrases. It's, it's just going backwards now. You notice that? For I am sorry that I made them. So God looks at us his very special creation, and he sees what we've become, and guess what? It makes him sad. Not mad. It makes him sad. It grieves his heart. We are good at getting mad. We are terrible at getting sad. Amen? God got sad. We broke this, and it broke his heart. It ought to break our heart. chapter 1 God sees what he created and he calls it good right he speaks a benediction over what he made it's good and he blesses it right And here we see God sees also God sees his creation what it has done and it makes him deeply sorrowful it is reversing things are being reversed we've come to the point of the story where the wickedness is now unbridled it's 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 right on websites And reality has become so distorted as to be unrecognizable from the original there is much suffering much violence much rebellion all over the earth and the Bible says it grieved God to his very heart the word that's translated there for grieved it means cause deep pain and it it, it inflicted pain where in his heart so like what we do somehow impacts God what a God Isn't that amazing God says that our unbridled and unrepentant sin is actually the source of deep pain to the very core of His being. Wow! God knows that He cannot let this corruption just go on forever and ever and ever. He just can't let it continue and endure. He must judge sin in sinful humans. Why? Because it's humans that do this. We do that. But He is slow to bring about his judgment. It's almost when you read this, read these verses here, it is almost as if God is sad that He has to do this. Like a father. I, I got you making me do this. I gotta discipline you now. I gotta punish you. Listen, God's wrath against our sin is not quick. It is not unhinged like our wrath is. But rather it is slow and is drenched with his own tears. Let me say that again. God's wrath against our sin is not quick or unhinged like our wrath is. But rather it is slow and is drenched with his own tears. But God will deal decisively with our sin, brothers and sisters. He will. He will get to a point where he says, that's enough. That's about enough of that. He declares that he will, quote, blot out man from the earth. And so God clearly attributes the source of evil to humans. Not animals, not weather patterns, not stars, to humans. And God says that he will remove that source from the earth. Okay? Okay. It is the wicked that leave the earth, not the righteous. That's the pattern. It's the righteous that stay in the earth. Did you know that? Read Genesis real slow again. Read about Noah. Read about Lot and who stayed and who left. The phrase blot out literally means to cleanse by washing off. Okay? The word is used very often when talking about washing off ink of parchment. So someone would take parchment and they'd take an ink pen and they'd write something down, like as in a judgment. They'd write it down and then they would wash it off with water and all the words would wash that off and you could write on it again like a big old tiny whiteboard, okay? Thereby erasing with water what you had just put there. God says he's going to erase humans from the earth by immersing them completely under water and thereby, through this great baptism of the world, cleanse the earth from sin, sin we've created and done. My brothers and sisters, God will certainly judge our sins one day and he will eliminate all of it from the earth. Evil, rebellion, and vandalism of his creation will not endure forever and ever. And everyone who commits his sins will be held accountable for what they've done. Which last time I checked is everybody that's sitting in this room and every soul listening to this podcast, right? God must be just, and therefore he must eliminate sin from his creation. And yet, and yet, as extreme as God is in his justice, he is equally extreme in his grace towards us. It's in the last verse that we read. It's right here, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace from God. Grace is unmerited favor. That's what that word means in the Hebrew. Grace every person on the planet was corrupt to the very core of its heart, our heart, and spreading that and banding together to do more of this stuff against God, right? And that would include Noah. I mean, he's part of everyone, right? That would include Noah. And yet God chose to save Noah and not only Noah, but his family? I mean, you remember what his dad said about Noah? This one shall bring us relief from our pain remember he said that that was his dad's hope that somehow through Noah people would be rescued from their sin now here's the question that I have is how can Noah be rescued from being plunged under the waters of God's judgment when he was just as sinful as himself I mean, how is it that his sins were passed over even though he was no more deserving of grace than anyone else? And here it is, because there was a true and better Noah coming after him. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one that Noah points us towards. It's right here in 1 Peter 3.20-21. The apostle says, Peter says, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of... Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so I'm coming back to my question how can Noah or you or I be spared the judgment that we all deserve because if everybody wants justice and everybody wants judgment there's a problem you're gonna get it too how do we get spared this here's how God has poured out Grace on us through the ultimate Noah. Through Jesus Christ, guys. Jesus was immersed under the flood of God's judgment for our sins. Not by water, but by crucifixion. That was his crushing submersion into the grave. It destroyed him. He died in our place for our sins. Christ, listen, Christ was blotted out. Christ's life was blotted out. Why? So that you would not be blotted out, but your sins would. Isn't God amazingly complex? Listen, here's the good news. All who put their trust in the baptism that Jesus underwent at the cross will be saved. No exceptions. They will receive God's grace. They will receive new life, just as Noah and his entire household received a new life. They showed up in a whole new world. Right? And so here's my encouragement for you. If your conscience is troubling you today, and I don't see how it can't, but if your conscience is troubling you today, that's a good thing. But I would encourage this turn to Jesus for cleansing. Don't turn to your church attendance. Don't turn to your good works. Don't turn to how much you love your mother. That's not going to cleanse you. Turn to Christ for cleansing. Confess your sin to him and you will receive cleansing from all the guilt. He'll take it away. Just like water. He'll wash it away and you will receive new life. And that's how, if you have that new life, that's how you appropriate it right now. Through confessing and receiving. And that's how you get renewed day after day after day after day after day till it never ends. So confess, rejoice, and receive in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We thank you. What a Savior. You are so good. Help us not forget all your benefits. Thank you for your baptism, the one we could not endure. so that we could have new life through your resurrection. I pray that you take these words, you press them into our hearts down deep, way down where the sin lives, and it would grow, and it would produce life. It would be generative to us. Bring us to confession and repentance, which leads to rejoicing. For you love us, and you forgive us. We thank you in Jesus' sacred name. Amen.